1740, Admiral of the British fleet George Anson undertook a brazen mission to circumnavigate the world. This attempt was made not for knowledge or prestige, but to disrupt or capture Spain's Pacific territories, which at the time were quite numerous and valuable, and Great Britain was at war with Spain at that particular moment as part of a nearly decade-long conflict called the War of Jenkins' Ear a moniker that referred to the captain of a British merchant ship who apparently had his ear cut off by Spanish sailors during peacetime. The British South Sea Company thought it would be in their financial best interest to get the British public fired up and outraged at the Spanish to the point of physical conflict, so they flogged that story into a conflagration which culminated in 1739 with a declaration of war, the resulting conflict only ending in 1748 with the Treaty of Aix-la-Champelle, though it was arguably absorbed into a larger conflict in 1742 with the emergence of the War of the Austrian Succession, which claimed the attention of pretty much all of Europe for a good long while. So in 1740, about a year after this War of Jenkins' Ear kicked off, Admiral Anson decided to take eight ships and to head down along the western coast of Africa to strike Spanish territory in South America then down around Cape Horn, the southern tip of South America, and up along the continent's coast to Mexico, then across the Pacific, over to Guam and Tinian, then to Macau, down through the Strait of Sunda in Indonesia, and across the Indian Ocean, around to the southern coast of Africa, the Cape of Good Hope, then back up around to England. This, today, would be an ambitious, long-duration bit of travel, but back in the 18th century, it was substantially more so, the expedition was plagued by problems from day one, with two of the eight ships failing before rounding Cape Horn and being forced to return home. The HSM Wager wrecked off the coast of Chile, the crew of that wrecked ship mutinying. The entire endeavor was late in leaving, and made further late by stormy weather around the Horn. So by the time they reached their first major destination, intending to strike at the source of much of the Spanish government's silver wealth in the Juan Fernandez Islands, only three of the original eight ships were still in fighting shape. The rest of Anson's circumnavigation was likewise hobbled by issues, from outbreaks of typhus and dysentery to problems with the Chinese. But he eventually managed to capture a Spanish galleon, which was loaded up with treasure being transported between Mexico and Manila. This capture netted him over 1.3 million silver coins, alongside a good number of ship charts, which showed important Spanish trade locations that were, up until that point, unknown to the British. The result of this successful voyage earned Admiral Anson respect and wealth for life, but important to note is that he returned home with only 188 men out of the original 1,854 he had set sail with three and a half years earlier, 1,400 of the missing having died, most from a single condition called scurvy. Scurvy is a disease that emerges as a result of a lack of vitamin C, otherwise known as ascorbic acid, after at least a month, though sometimes quite a bit longer, without any source of vitamin C. The afflicted person may begin to feel weak, tired, and sore in their extremities. 
They eventually begin to bleed from their gums and sometimes their skin, have decreased red blood cell counts and changes to their hair, and eventually, in the worst, most mature cases, they can undergo personality changes and can have issues with wounds not healing or not healing correctly. In one documented case, from aboard one of Anson's ships during this voyage, a sailor who had been wounded 50 years earlier in another war saw his earlier, long-healed wounds open back up, and a broken bone from that same period fractured all over again, reportedly as a consequence of coming down with scurvy. Now, today, we know that scurvy is caused by a lack of vitamin C, and it's rare that anyone gets it unless they have issues absorbing vitamin C or are in some way severely limited in their eating habits. Back then, though, we didn't know what vitamins were. The concept didn't exist. Citrus fruit had been recommended by many mariners of the ancient world for long voyages as a result of empirical observation, observant people having noted that the fruit seemed to cure or at least keep scurvy at bay, and thus it was probably a good idea to have limes aboard the ship whenever possible. And in fact, there are documents from ancient Greece and ancient Egypt indicating that both cultures knew that vitamin C-containing foods were cures for this affliction, though they had different ideas about why, and their knowledge was eventually forgotten, before eventually being rediscovered again. So there's a good chance that many other cultures knew about this, too, at least at times, throughout history and around the world. During this particular British-Spanish conflict, though, in the 18th century in Europe, it was mostly thought that scurvy was the result of some combination of dirtiness, bad air, and or some kind of digestive issue. It's estimated that during the European Age of Exploration alone, a period lasting between about 1500 and 1800 AD, around 2 million sailors died of scurvy. And though there were many captains who went through productive motions that cured scurvy, stopping at a particular island where there were lemon trees on the way back from a voyage, for instance, or making a particular type of tea to cure the ailment, many of them did not connect the dots and thought that the region they would stop at was somehow blessed, or that the tea was the cure, not a specific ingredient that it contained. What's more, because of the nature of such professions, and the relatively slow rate of knowledge transmission at this time, any potential cures tended to be limited to a specific crew, rather than spreading to all crews. So it was very hit and miss, with one ship benefiting from vitamin C-related cures, while another ship that frequently docked at the same port would be completely oblivious. This changed when a Scottish surgeon named James Lind conducted one of the first-ever clinical trials in 1747. This experiment, which was notable because it included control groups and because he reported upon his findings afterward, was predicated on Lind's suspicion that scurvy was connected to the putrefaction of the body, the breaking down of the body that takes place after death, which he thought could be staved off by acids. That in mind, he divided 12 sailors, all of whom were suffering from scurvy, into six groups of two, each of whom had the same diet, except for an acidic addition that was different from group to group. One group had cider each day, another had a liquid made of sulfuric acid, another had vinegar, Another had a bit of seawater, and yet another consumed a spice-laden paste, along with a barley water drink to wash it down. The sixth group, though, 
had two oranges and one lemon, along with their normal daily rations, and that last group was the only one that showed a decided, near-perfect medicinal effect, with the afflicted sailors ready for duty after about a week, though that first group that drank the cider also saw a small improvement in their health. Lind published the results of this early work, but it didn't receive much public notice, nor did his subsequent works, which tested a variety of substances, including sauerkraut and a syrup made from oranges and lemons, based on how well they seemed to prevent the emergence of scurvy. Though his recommendation that sailors grow watercress, which is a type of green salad plant that contains vitamin C, was taken up by some ships in the British Navy. But worth noting here is that Lind, like most other medical professionals at this point, still didn't understand why these foods worked. He still thought it was because we're putrefying and need acidic foods to fend off that putrefaction. He also thought that there were multiple types of scurvy, each of which required its own cure. Based on these dietary additives, though, and the medical reports written by Lind, a rear admiral named Alan Gardner decided to issue lemon juice mixed with grog, a type of watered-down rum often provided to sailors on long voyages at this point in history, to all of the sailors aboard his ship during a 23-week non-stop voyage to India. There were no serious outbreaks of scurvy on that particular voyage, which was unheard of at this time, and this led to demand for lemon juice throughout the entire navy, a demand that was only filled by around 1800. Up until that point, they were able to issue lemon juice to ships near British ports, but not beyond that. There just wasn't enough available to go around. Lind went on to also work on the prevention of typhus and figured out how to distill fresh water from salt water, but he's probably best known today for his initial experiment and subsequent paper on the subject of scurvy, which recommended using lemons and limes on all naval vessels because it led to the near elimination of the disease on oceanic voyages as soon as reliable sources of citrus were put into place. What I'd like to talk about today is vitamins, the role they play in the human body, and the economy that's grown up around them, for better and for worse. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The first vitamin ever isolated and named was what we today call vitamin D, but which at the time was called anti-tachytic A, and eventually vitamin A. It was discovered by using fish oil to cure rickets in rats. Other experimenters determined that there must be some unseen additional component to foods that we're not able to detect, and they did this by breaking foods into their then-known constituent parts and, for instance, feeding mice the proteins, fats, carbohydrates, and salt that make up milk, alongside a group of mice who drank unbroken apart pure milk. The group that consumed the constituents died, while the milk drinkers lived, indicating to scientists in Russia and the Netherlands who conducted studies of this kind in the early 20th century that we were missing something. There was something in these foods that we weren't detecting that was fundamental to keeping biological entities alive. Around this same time in Japan, the Japanese Navy was plagued by a cardiovascular condition called beriberi, 
a naval medical doctor named Takaki Kanahiro suspected this condition might be related to the bleached rice people typically ate as a staple food, because the lower economic classes came down with beriberi a lot more frequently, and their diets were almost entirely rice, while the upper classes also consumed rice but ate it as part of a far more varied diet. To test this postulation, Kanahiro got permission to have the crew of one battleship eat nothing but rice, while the other ate a more varied diet. The crew that ate just the rice had the typical amount of beriberi cases for the time, 161 crew members afflicted and 25 deaths, while the group with the more varied diet had only 14 cases overall and no deaths. Kanahiro incorrectly thought that it was a lack of protein that caused beriberi, rather than what we later discovered was a lack of thiamine, or what we often call vitamin B1. But as was the case with Lind and vitamin C, the dietarily essential micronutrients that we today call vitamins were not known to people at this time. From 1913 through 1948, though, we discovered vitamin B1, A, C, D, B2, E, K1, B5, B7, B6, B3, B9, and B12, in that order. The first of these, vitamin B1, was isolated by a Japanese scientist from raw rice bran, and his work was published in a scientific journal, but the translated version did not mention that the paper had uncovered a newly discovered nutrient, so few people outside of Japan paid much attention to it. Two years later, in 1912, a Polish biochemist working in London named Casimir Funk isolated the same micronutrients and proposed that they be called vitamins, short for vital amines. Funk had read a paper about how people who consumed brown rice instead of the polished, bran-free white rice were likely to contract beriberi and decided to try to isolate whatever it was in those rice husks that made people more or less immune to this common condition. The substance he isolated contained an amine group, which is a type of compound, but it seemed quite vital to the health and survival of those who consumed them, hence vital amines, vitamins. Funk went on to publish work in which he proposed the existence of at least four vitamins, including the anti-beriberi one, another that prevented scurvy, another that prevented rickets, and one more that prevented pellagra, an unpleasant and potentially deadly disease caused by the lack of niacin, or vitamin B3. It was eventually discovered that vitamins need not be amines, so the E was removed from the end of the word, leaving us with a new word, vitamins. Funk went on to more formally predict the existence of what we today call vitamins B1, B2, C, and D, figured out the molecular structure of thiamine, vitamin B1, and after moving to the U.S. in 1940, he started up a medical research foundation and spent his final years studying what at the time were called neoplasms, but which we today typically call cancers. Up until the mid-1930s, the only available source of vitamins was food. At that point, though, a few synthesized vitamin B and vitamin C tablets became available on the consumer market, and then post-World War II in the 1950s, based in part on investments made during the war, governments around the world wanting to keep their soldiers in good health by supplementing their not-great front-to-line diets with vitamins. Vitamin supplements, including early multivitamins, hit the market. Governments worldwide around this time 
also started fortifying staple foods with vitamins to prevent common deficiencies in their populations. So vitamins were added to flour, milk, rice, and the like, in part to prevent known issues that could arise in not very diversified diets, but also as part of an effort to counter the negative impacts of processing foods more ambitiously. Just as processing rice was what made its consumers more susceptible to beriberi, so too were a great many food staples, mid-20th century, being processed like never before, leading to greater output and more predictable, shelf-stable brands, but also fewer natural nutrients, hence the fortification efforts. They were trying to add those nutrients back in as the final step of the manufacturing process. That historical context established, the article I'd like to unspool today comes from Newsweek, and it's entitled, Does Vitamin D Deficiency Really Increase Risks of Death from COVID-19? There are several studies being conducted around the world right now, in May 2020, that are looking into the efficacy of various fundamental vitamins and other dietary components in helping to treat COVID-19 and COVID-19-related issues. A few of these studies have already finished up, the ones that look at existing data to find patterns rather than the ones that are structured to create new data from controlled trials. And they indicate that there might be a correlation between vitamin D levels and the severity of COVID-19 infections. Namely, there seem to be more infections and more severe cases and deaths among people who have vitamin D deficiencies, and far fewer among people who have stable, healthy levels of vitamin D. Very important to this flurry of news reports about vitamin D and COVID-19 is that these are preliminary results, and they have not yet been peer-reviewed which means there could be errors, there could be typos, there could be results that are only found in this one group of data. It may not be replicable, and it may not apply to anyone outside of this perhaps unique group. So while this is an interesting result, and potentially quite useful, and definitely worthy of further inquiry, it's not certain, and it's not yet actionable, because again, there are any number of things that could be wrong with it, and even if not, it may be that we're looking at the data in an unproductive way drawing the wrong conclusions from it. Older people, for instance, don't tend to have as much vitamin D in their systems compared to younger people because they take in less of the available vitamin D from food that they eat, and older people for a variety of reasons, including overall immune system function, are on average more susceptible to the disease. This is mentioned in one of these early research papers produced by the Queen Elizabeth Hospital Foundation and the University of East Anglia, The results are interesting, but it very well could be that they merely point back at what we already know, and that vitamin D deficiencies are just one trait found in people who are, for other reasons, under greater threat from this disease, rather than this being something that could be tweaked to make them less susceptible. That said, this and similar studies have led to an abundance of reports from all sorts of news entities and vitamin-related organizations and businesses about how it might be prudent to get outside and get more sunshine, since we humans produce some of our own vitamin D when we're exposed to the sun, and to perhaps also take a vitamin D supplement, a recommendation that's been formalized in the United Kingdom with an announcement from the British Dietetic Association that adults living in the UK should consider taking a daily supplement of 10 micrograms of vitamin D a day, quite a low dose, though they suggest doing so alongside a diet of vitamin D-rich foods, 
like oily fish, egg yolks, and fortified breakfast cereals. It's possible to imagine a world in which we could hear about this kind of early research and take it for what it is, early research that may point at something useful, but which may not. We could think about this data as just one more bit of data and use it to derive hopefully near-future useful knowledge, which in turn improves overall human knowledge. Unfortunately, we do not live in that world. The world we live in does contain people who are genuinely just trying to get at the truth, including, almost certainly, the people conducting and releasing updates about these studies that they're doing. Often more influential over the lives and opinions of the everyday person, though, are entities that have other ambitions and interests, which in this case very much includes the massive $35 billion a year U.S. supplement industry and similar and similarly scaled variations of the same around the world, though especially in countries where people have more expendable income to spend on a variety of supplements. Now, because of the potency and effective marketing done by entities within that industry, some of what I'm about to say will be uncomfortable to hear for some people because a lot of us take supplements of some kind and perhaps even benefit from doing so, even if just psychologically. Most of the research that's been done at this point, though, indicates that most supplements are, at their best, ineffective. They pass right through us after we take them. And most of them are, thankfully, at reasonable doses, harmless. Which means basically that these vitamins and multivitamin pills go in and then go right out. They're generally not super bioavailable in the way that vitamins consumed in foods would be. Because the pill versions, though technically usually containing the right molecules, are not consumed in the way they would be naturally in food. Some of these supplements, especially those that provide higher doses, can be harmful. And in fact, every once in a while, one of these supplements kills enough people that, here in the United States at least, the FDA does something about it, as was the case with ephedra, which is a natural substance derived from plants that killed 155 people before being taken off the market by the FDA in 2003. Unfortunately, a lot of other supplements that increase risks for just some groups are not removed in the same way, because this is a market that is largely unregulated. The companies making these pills can put more or less whatever they like in the pills, as long as they're not obviously poison, and as long as the claims that they make about the effectiveness of the product don't go too far off into obvious lie territory. Hence the hedging, vague language used on most of these products. Too much beta-carotene, though can increase the risk of lung cancer in smokers. Vitamin E can increase the risk of prostate cancer in those who consume it. And high doses of vitamin A can cause birth defects. Take too much iron and you can die. Take too much selenium and you can get what's called selenosis, which leads to hair loss, fatigue, and even nerve damage. Very important to note here is that there are a lot of true believers in the supplement world. It's just that a whole lot of what they're selling has either not been shown to be effective when it's been tested in formal scientific studies, or has been shown to not be effective in those same settings. Which means a lot of what we're left with is anecdote, which is notoriously unreliable because of an individual's inability to say for sure what is definitively happening and why it's happening. This is why we have scientific processes in place to figure out what is actually causing what, and under what circumstances. 
everything else is just as likely to be misunderstanding and honest misinterpretation as something factual, as has been the case throughout history, with even very smart people thinking that scurvy is caused by humans internally putrefying and needing to drink acid to prevent it. Amplifying these misunderstandings is an interconnected network of financial interests that benefit when we assume that taking a pill will solve real or imagined problems that we have, and especially when we believe that they can do so more potently and reliably than longer-term, less sexy traditional approaches. Supplement companies, health and wellness influencers on YouTube and Instagram and elsewhere, and other components of the modern vitamin-connected economy are all financially incentivized to make these things seem vital to our health and survival, when in reality, most of what they are peddling either doesn't work, doesn't work as well as they say it does, or works only as a placebo, something that we feel good when we take because it feels like we're doing something healthy for ourselves, but which is no more effective chemically than a sugar pill, something that contains no medicine at all. That said, we do have evidence that some of these things actually do work and are very beneficial in some doses for some people. Folic acid reduces the risk of some birth defects. Vitamin B12 is amazing for people who do not absorb vitamin B12 in food very well, which is somewhat common, especially in people over 50. And it's also a godsend for vegans and other people who do not consume much or any meat. There's a combination supplement made up of antioxidants that has been shown to possibly slow the progression of macular degeneration in older adults, and it's possible that a daily multivitamin may be useful for some people, especially older people, and especially older people who have limited diets and who are thus missing out on a few important vitamins that they might otherwise get from food. There's also a decent amount of evidence that taking a combination of vitamin D and calcium can help those who are at particular risk of osteoporosis reduce that risk. And there are arguments to be made for very focused, often low-dose supplementation of vitamins and minerals that are important but severely lacking in your diet for whatever reason, things like magnesium. Now importantly, this is completely different in poorer parts of the world where people are a lot less likely to benefit from modern healthcare and diverse, nutrient-rich diets. In most of the wealthy world, most supplements have been not shown to add much of anything to anyone's health outcomes. But in poorer parts of the world, the fortification of foods and additional vitamins can be very valuable. So keep that distinction in mind here. It's also important to remember that new research is being done in this space all the time. And although most of the scientific data we currently have available points at the majority of these supplements being not harmful at best, but still pretty useless beyond the psychological placebo effect benefits we might get from feeling like we're doing something healthy for ourselves, there's always the chance that future tests will uncover some new evidence of benefits, and that could change the conversation about some specific vitamin or nutrient. It's also possible that, as was the case with ephedra, we could uncover new risks, severe or relatively mundane, associated with any of these supplements. And as was the case with ephedra, there is a good chance that these companies and these influencers would gleefully continue to peddle these things, all the way up until the point where it's removed from the market, and commonly accepted to be killing people. 
most researchers and doctors operating in this space, those that do not have any financial incentive to promote a particular supplement, say that they seldom recommend anything beyond a varied diet to their patients, friends, and family. While some of them acknowledge that it feels empowering to walk down the supplement aisle, feeling like you can improve your life with just a small investment, the main benefits of doing so, of buying these pills, are psychological, not physical. That the placebo effect is real, but that there are better ways to improve one's health than taking supplements, seems to be the dominant message from folks who actually do this kind of research and make the recommendations that governments and other authorities eventually adopt for a living. A money quote from one such researcher is that lentils are a far better investment for most people than any supplement that you can buy, as a half-cup serving of lentils contains 24 grams of protein, 10 grams of fiber, a whole day's worth of folate, alongside significant doses of thiamine, iron, phosphorus, and zinc. And because it's food, you'll be more likely to absorb these beneficial nutrients rather than having them pass right through you, as is often the case with pills. So if you want the best bang for your buck, based on the best currently available health and medical science, lentils are apparently a pretty decent way to go, at least compared to pills. All that said, looping back around to the vitamin D and COVID-19 research, it's still possible that this particular puzzle piece ends up being key in increasing resistance in at least some portion of the population and reducing the intensity of infection in those who do come down with it. Vitamin D in general is known to boost immune systems, so it can be effective in fighting the common cold, the flu, and potentially COVID-19. That's not a particularly controversial statement. It's like saying that being overall healthy will make you less likely to get sick and less likely to suffer from an extreme case if you do catch something. There have been clinical trials, though, that take this a step further and indicate that vitamin D supplements, which allow a person to take in quite a bit more than they might otherwise get in food and from the sun, could lower the risk of developing acute respiratory tract infections by somewhere between 12 and 75%, a super broad range, which indicates the uncertainty of this statement. But there is evidence to support this possibility, derived from data collected from seasonal flus and from the pandemic flu that was caused by the H1N1 virus in 2009. And this benefit was apparently seen in patients of all ages and folks with and without pre-existing chronic illnesses, which is heartening and surprisingly broad-based for this type of thing, as benefits are usually limited to one or two particular groups. Now, the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, which is an unbiased organization dedicated to basically weeding out bad interpretations of data and biased health and medicine-related information being promoted around the world, has published a rapid review statement on this matter, saying that their initial findings of the preliminary research in question doesn't show clinical evidence of vitamin D being effective against COVID-19. If you squint your eyes and blur the numbers a bit, there is evidence that taking vitamin D3 supplements over the course of weeks or months can help prevent other types of acute respiratory infections, especially in those who have a lack of vitamin D in general, which includes older folks and also people who have darker skin and who thus produce less vitamin D as a consequence of exposure to sunlight. Some people also just naturally have it. I'm in my 30s and pale-skinned, but I have in the past had a vitamin D deficiency. It's something that some people just have. 
But in general, they cast doubt on this new round of research, saying that, in their initial assessment at least, there doesn't seem to be anything there. But they also note that people should still follow the most up-to-date government guidelines, which at this point, in the UK at least, recommends taking a very small vitamin D supplement, which, at the minimum, should be harmless, but which could eventually prove to be useful if these numbers do someday pan out. So, less enthusiastic support for the possibilities in that assessment, but still some support for the might-as-well approach to a small vitamin D supplement, because it could help, and at the very least almost certainly won't hurt. Which, in some cases, this one included, it would seem, at least for the time being, is the best that we can hope for. The newsletter that I'd like to recommend today is called Tangle, and it's written by a guy named Isaac Saul. Tangle is advertised as an independent, ad-free, non-partisan politics newsletter that offers both sides of the biggest news stories every day. And remarkably, it manages to do that pretty dang well. I have been a subscriber for several weeks now, and I've enjoyed each and every edition of this newsletter. It is not easy to do unbiased news, especially considering the incentives to try to do a both-sidism approach, where you give things equal weight, even truly ridiculous things. But he'll go through and say, here is what the right-leaning publications are reporting. Here is what the left-leaning publications are reporting. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider subscribing to Tangle. You can find it at tangle.substack.com. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.